Bokertov, good morning. Welcome to our Aliyah day. Glad that you're with me this morning. Glad I'm with you. From wherever you're watching, across the fruited plain, all across the world, studying the Torah together. Isn't it amazing? Thank God for technology. That we can be, uh, we can be in Amsterdam, or we can be in uh, Chad, Africa, or maybe even uh, Japan, and we're all studying together, right here, uh, the Torah of God. Baruch Hashem. Hope you're having a blessed day. Hope you're having a magnificent day. <clears throat> or as we say in French, wonderful. So, we're going to open up the Torah to the book of Vaikra, otherwise known as Leviticus. And we are in the parasha Akarimot. Uh, Akari means after, mot means the death, after the death of Aaron's two sons. We're going to be in the third Aliyah today, which begins in chapter 16 and verse 25, uh, all the way through to the end of the chapter. So let's read and find out what amazing insights uh, we have to discover today. It says, and the, fat, and the fat of the sin offering he shall cause to go up in smoke upon the altar. The one who dispatched the he-goat to Azazel shall immerse his clothing and immerse himself in the water. Thereafter he may enter the camp. The sin offering bull and the sin offering he-goat, whose blood has been brought to provide atonement in the sanctuary, someone shall remove to the outside of the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their hides, their flesh, and their dung. The one who burns them shall immerse his clothing and immerse himself in the water. Thereafter he may enter the camp. Verse 29. This shall remain for you an eternal decree in the seventh month. On the tenth of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, and you shall not do any work, neither the native nor the proselyte who dwells among you. So obviously we have here the uh, converts are included as well. Somebody um, yeah, somebody sent me a message uh, over the weekend. We was just asking somebody that uh, is kind of new to everything. And... They were con confused. Uh, I know you can convert, but you can't really become a Jew, can you? Because uh, be a, a Jew is a race. Uh, no, it isn't. Which, uh, it is not a race. Jews come in every size, color, shape. They come from every tribe and tongue. And absolutely, when you convert, you become a Jew 100% in all respects. So it says in verse 30, For th on this day he shall provide atonement for you to purify you from all your sins. Before Adonai you shall be purified. It is a Sabbath of complete rest, a Shabbat Shabbaton. And you shall afflict yourselves an eternal decree. So Yom Kippur is an eternal decree. A lot of people who believe in the Mashiach, um, they... They don't understand why Yom Kippur is eternal decree. But first and foremost, we don't have to understand something before we're liable for it, right? I mean, meaning that just because we don't understand why something is eternal, if God says it's eternal, it's eternal. It doesn't matter what we think. There's plenty of laws that we follow that we don't necessarily understand why there's such a law. Why does it take 20 pages to fill out a tax return? Why can't you do it on an index card, really? But we don't understand it, but you can't just say, I don't understand it, therefore I'm not going to do it. If you did that, you'd end up in jail. 
So God says you're to have this festival. It's supposed to be an eternal decree. So people wonder if, if Mashiach has has forgiven us, if Mashiach has wiped away our sins, why do we have to do Yom Kippur? And why is it going to be an eternal decree forever? And there's a really good answer to this. It has to do with the fact that it's not really about sin. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's beyond that, actually. But regardless, it's an eternal decree, period. And remember that nobody, no one, no person, not even the Mashiach, uh, if we believe the Bible, not even the Mashiach can come and overturn God's holy Torah. Nobody can. You can write a thousand letters to 50 congregations. doesn't matter. Deuteronomy chapter 13 makes it explicit that anybody who comes, even if they raise the dead, do great miracles, mighty things, and they try to turn you away from God's law, then I'm telling you that they're a false prophet and I'm testing you. Even the Messiah himself said it and in, uh, what was it, Matthew chapter 7. He said, listen, you come and you preach in my name, you're doing great things, you're doing amazing things, wonderful, you've got a great show on the on the program, it's a wonderful show. You had that conference last year, it was amazing, you filled the whole stadium, it was great. But here's the problem. You, I don't know you. Because you're in a worker of iniquity, and that word anomia means that you're not following my Torah. You wrote a bunch of letters, it's great, they're very popular. The problem is... You nullify the Torah. So that's a problem. So it's eternal decree. Chapter 32. The Kohen who has been anointed or who has been given the authority to serve in place of his father shall provide atonement. He shall don the linen vestments, the sacred vestments. He shall bring atonement upon the Holy of Holies. And he shall bring atonement upon the tent of meeting and the altar. Isn't it interesting that the Holy of Holies needs atonement? The sages write about this and say, why is it or how is it rather that the Holy of Holies can uh, require atonement? How can the most sacred place on earth require atonement? The answer is, is because of our sin causes the Shekinah to, to leave. And once the Shekinah leaves, the essence of its holiness is not there, so therefore we have to provide atonement for it. So it says, And we shall bring atonement upon the tent of meeting and the altar and upon the Kohanim and upon all the peoples of the congregation shall bring atonement. This shall be for you an eternal decree to bring atonement upon the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And Aaron did as Adonai commanded Moshe. So we have the eternal decree mentioned yet again. As it says in the article Humash and the footnotes here, reiterating the fact that it's eternal uh, an eternal commandment. The eternal commandment to Yom Kippur, having completed the Yom Kippur ritual, the Torah states that the commandment to observe Yom Kippur is an annual one that is in addition to the temple service, which has been the sole focus of the chapter to this point, there are now additional commandments given to fast and re refrain from work. Yom Kippur is called the Shabbat Shabbaton, is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It's really the holiest day on of the year, the holiest day of uh, the entire calendar. If you think about Yom Kippur, it's the holiest day of the year. Where the holiest man, the the uh, Kohen Gadol, goes into the holiest place, which is the holiest holies, and affects salvation for us. This is a day we're not allowed to fast on every other fast day, whether it's Tisha B'Av, well, or what have you, um, the fast of the firstborn. We do not fast on a Sabbath. If the, if it happens to fall on a seventh day of the week, the Shabbat. We do not fast. 
However, um, this does not hold true with respect to Yom Kippur. If Yom Kippur happens to fall on a Shabbat, we fast. Because the Yom Kippur takes precedence over uh, over those things. Yom Kippur, obviously on other um, Yom Tavs, we are allowed to cook in order to prepare food uh, for the next day, or for that day, I should say. Uh, and this is obviously not true on Yom Kippur. It, it is a day, it says here, of complete rest, meaning, that's what Shabbat Shabbaton means, meaning that we refrain from even minor activities that normally on Shabbat we might do. So one of our customs, for instance, at uh, Sar Shalom is that on Yom Kippur, we don't have any music at all. It's one of the things we do for Yom Kippur as a congregation to set it apart even more as, uh, as a special day. Now there's fasting that takes place on this day. Um, the, afflag- the, the fasting here is re- referred to as affliction. It says in the Hebrew, Tanu et nafshastechem, you shall afflict yourselves. The sages expound that the expression afflict refers only to the uh, abstention from food and drink, Yoma 74b. Whatever scripture, whenever scripture associates nefesh, that is self, with affliction, it refers to fasting. So it's interesting, um, though, the way that Rambam worded this whole quote-unquote affliction. He did not say fasting or affliction. But when he was writing the Hilakot of the day, as it points out here in the in the uh, art scroll, that he said that it is a positive commandment um, on Yom Kippur to rest, to rest from eating and drinking. He said it is forbidden to bathe, to apply oil to the body, to wear clothes, or to cohabit. That is, have have uh, marital relationships on this day. It is a positive commandment to rest from all of these. It is commanded to rest from eating. So it says here, Ramban's choice of words is significant. He states that on Yom Kippur, one rests from the listed activities, which indicates that the purpose of fasting is not that one should suffer, but that he should transcend the normal human lamentations that prevent him from functioning properly unless he eats. So this is very significant because it is completely contrary to the Western mind and to many theological minds. Just like when we say sacrifice, when we say bring a sacrifice, to the Western mind, to the pagan understanding, to sacrifice is to subtract something, to lose something, to give up something. But in Hebrew, the word sacrifice, korban, means to draw near. So quite the opposite of losing, quite the opposite of subtracting, to bring a sacrifice is to draw near to God. Well, in fasting, we think about fasting and the focus is I can't eat anything, I can't drink anything, I'm afflicting myself. We're taking the proverbial whip and whipping over our shoulders and uh, all of that. But that's not really it. We're actually resting from those activities. We're resting from bathing. We're resting from uh, anointing ourselves with oil, 
putting on shoes, or resting from those mundane activities that normally are required for a human body. A human body requires food. A human body requires anointing. A human body requires bathing. We're resting from that. Why? So that we can transcend from the mundane to the spiritual. So we change our focus. It's it's not that we're afflicting ourselves, but we're elevating ourselves. It says on Yom Kippur, a Jew is like an angel who serves God without need of for food. Remember that Moshe, when he went up to Mount Sinai, that he did not eat for 40 days and 40 nights. That's impossible. <clears throat> it was impossible for the human body to endure no food and no water or no drink for 40 days. So how is it possible that he did that? The answer is he transcended he transcended into a new dimension. And in that new dimension, he was eating and drinking of the divine presence, which is exactly the same food that the angels partake of. So on Yom Kippur, you know, I often wonder. I'm just and this is just anecdotal. It's not, you know, scientific, but uh me personally a little insight into my personal uh physiology i need to eat something in the morning i need to eat a little something i don't know if it's blood sugar or whatever but you know i get up and if i don't have something to eat within maybe an, an hour or two of of getting up i start to get a little nauseated you know a lot of people like that i guess but for me it is uh other people are different repetine's not quite the same way she can go she can get up and have a cup of coffee and go you know, a while without having breakfast. Me, I have to get up, have to have something to eat. But not so on Yom Kippur. It's amazing. On Yom Kippur, and I'm not saying that I'm some type of uh, holy Zadik walking on water. I'm just saying that on Yom Kippur that I don't have that issue. And Yom Kippur, we begin fasting the night before. And so really, Yom Kippur is a 25-hour fast. It's, a, it's longer than, than most, right? But I don't have that issue. Um, and I've often wondered about that. What, what, what is it? And maybe I'm just suggesting perhaps because my focus and our focus is on transcending on that day, um, we just don't have the, the, the need for food like we do normally. It's just interesting to me. I don't know. Maybe you're the same way. Um, and so anyway, so it says we transcend, we become like the angels. On Yom Kippur, a, a Jew is like the angel without need of food. In, in the Yom Kippur Magzor, which proclaims that teshuva, that is repentance, is one of the means deflecting evil decrees, the word zum, fast, is subscribed over the word teshuva. The subscription implication is plain. Fasting's greatest value is when it is associated with repentance, and the purpose of the fast is to elevate Jews, not to cause them physical deprivation. <clears throat> so again, when we fast on Yom Kippur, it's about elevation. Now this brings us back to the question of, why do we need Yom Kippur if we have the Mashiach? That's, that's, a, that's a question that perplexes a lot of people, and they wring their hands over it and wonder. Because, and let me tell you the, the, the subconscious um, issue, or as we say in England, issue, uh, behind that. <clears throat> because people have been taught, 
uh, and, and it plays in our mind psycho- psychologically, subconsciously, I should say, that if you believe in the Messiah, uh, saved by grace, etc., and then you turn around and try to obey God's commandments, you are somehow trampling grace underfoot and denying the Messiah. And so people are terrified by that. That's It keeps people bound in fear. Let me just tell you something that will hopefully set you free. God will never punish you for being obedient to his word. Let me say that one more time. God will never punish you for being obedient to his word. He will never send you to hell for following his commandments. Okay? In the same way that a good, righteous, sane, mentally stable, emotionally stable parent would never punish their kid for doing what the parent said to do. Who does that? I told Johnny to clean his room. You know, can you imagine yourself at work? Hey, I I went home and I had told Johnny to clean his room before I went to work. And when I get home, I should find it clean. And so your, your, your coworker says, so what happened? So I went home and Johnny's room was spotless. Not only did he clean it, but he went ahead and cleaned the bathroom too. Not only the bathroom, but just because he was so zealous, he, he mopped the kitchen floor. The coworker, that's amazing. What'd you do? I grounded him for two weeks. Took away his uh, his uh, took away his uh, allowance. Told him to, took away his phone. I said, "How dare you do what I tell you to do? And even more than I do. What What are you thinking? You're crazy." What do you think the coworker would say? He say, "You're crazy. <laughs> You're crazy. Who would do that?" But that's what we've been taught. We've been taught that if we obey God, He'll send us to hell. Think about it. So we ascend. Tell me that's not what you've been taught. Listen to this, what it says in the Kehol Tumash. So I want to set your mind at ease. It's okay to obey God. He's not going to be angry. God is not going to be angry with you if you obey his word. However, he does say if we're disobedient, that's when we have problems. It's, it's not complicated. It's just logical. Yom Kippur, it says in the Kehil Tumash, atones for all sins. We just said we transcend the like the angels and that fasting uh, coupled with teshuva, that's, that's the whole purpose. Yom Kippur itself atones for all sins. It says in the Kehil Tumash, the holiness of Yom Kippur atones, as, as it says, for the effect of the sin on the individual, wiping him or her clean of the effect of sin. Now listen to this. This is very good. Rather than excising the sin from us, rather than removing the sin from us, from taking the sin away from us, so to speak, Yom Kippur excises us from the sins. Very subtle difference, but important difference. Instead of just bringing the sin out of us, we now uh, are removed from sin altogether. We're elevated above sin. It says here, in fact, elevating us far above them. Therefore, the particulars of the sins that we commit are not so relevant. This has to do with the fact that the question is, does Yom Kippur atone for the major sins or minor sins, the one that require lashes or the one that require a death penalty? And the answer is it doesn't 
that's not really relevant because when we engage in Yom Kippur, we're not removing particular sins from us. We're actually removing ourselves from sin. So it says, all that is required is that we yearn to be reconciled with God in a general sense and express, and express this yearning by observing the Yom Kippur properly. So again, just a little change of a mindset here. When we fast and 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 uh, we we afflict ourselves, so to speak, you know, we're um, we're not engaged in, in in marital intimacy. You know, uh, 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 you know, the husband is sleeping on the living room floor or whatever, and we're, we're not we're not women don't wear at Sar Shalom. The women uh, go without makeup on Yom Kippur, etc. But why? Why are we doing that? Are we doing that because, oh, you know, I have to really beat myself down? No. The whole purpose is trying to transcend above this mundane physical reality, this olam chazeh, and to ascend into the olam chaba, into the world to come. It's drawing close to God. It's a yearning for God. It's a yearning for God. And going back to the God won't punish you for obeying him, the whole reason for obeying the mitzvah, remember, we're already saved, right? Remember, we had already left. We, Egypt was way behind us when we accepted the Torah. We weren't accepting the Torah in order to leave Egypt. Egypt was uh, way back. The armies of Egypt were already drowned in the Yamsuf before we accepted the Torah. Accepting the Torah is in response to God's love and it is a yearning for more of Him. So it says, Yom Kippur elevates us this way because the day itself reveals the intrinsic connection that every Jew shares with God by virtue of his or her divine soul. Notice it says every Jew. It doesn't say every Noahide. I'm reading from the Kehol Tumash that believes very much the, 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 the editors of the Kehol Tumash are very much believers in the Noahide laws for Gentiles. But this is why I'm telling you there's no such thing as a Noahide. Why? Because there's no such thing as a covenant for Noahide. Why? Because it says here, every Jew shares with God by virtue of his or own divine soul. It doesn't say Noahides and Jews. It just says Jews. So if you want to participate in the highest level of covenant, you've got to be a Jew. But that's, a, that's an aside. So it says, every Jew shares with God by virtue of his or her divine soul. The connection between our essence and God's essence pre-existed creation and therefore transcends the limitations of time and space. Why does it say that? Because ultimately our souls come from God and therefore our souls have a divine nature to them. I'm not saying that we are divine, but I'm saying that our souls have a divine nature to them. Why? Because ultimately our souls come from God. How do we know that? Because it says God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. So it says it is thus, it is thus, it is thus cannot be damaged by misdeeds that we might have committed. Our souls are, are intrinsically connected to God and therefore intrinsically remain pure and it is what we're trying to do is to reach that that's that soul elevation if you will now i want to go back a little bit to something else here in the kl tumash going back from to yesterday's aliyah from verse 17 
that Yom Kippur gives us the ability, because we've been talking about, to become like angels. But in fact, angels are sent to serve us, ultimately. And through God's grace and power and love, we have the ability to transcend the angels. And this is alluded to in the, in the verse, um, verse 17, where it says, No person may be in the tent of meeting when Aaron enters to effect atonement in the holies of holies. So on the, the Peshat level, the surface level is, no other human being can be in that area when, um, when Aaron goes into the holy of holies. That, that's obvious. But according to the Talmud, this implies, it says, uh, and by the way, this Talmud reference is from uh, the, 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 the Jerusalem Talmud, Yoma 1.5. It says, this implies that even angels are not allowed to be present in the Holy of Holies when the incense is offered up. What is the meaning? What this means, rather, is that the dynamic repentance that occurs when our inner divine essence is manifest as happens when the when the incense is offered up on the Holy of Holies of Yom Kippur, is totally beyond the angels. Inasmuch as angels are personifications of the divine energies present within creation, their identities are fixed. They cannot change. So an angel does not have the ability to change, really. They're kind of static. Whereas we have the ability to be rejuvenated, reborn, recreated, so on. So it says, repentance in contrast is a reversal of the supposedly fixed laws of nature, including the laws normally governing the spiritual nature of life. For through repentance, it is possible for a person to ascend even instantaneously from the lowest spiritual depths to the most exalted spiritual heights. Thus, when we said above that the Yom Kippur, we become quasi-angels, this was only with regard to our ascent over our spiritual natures. In terms of our spiritual growth, we surpass the capability of the angels whenever we renew and remake ourselves through repentance. So, as I said, we have the ability to even surpass the angels. Why? Because we have the ability to become new creations. Now, it doesn't take away from the fact that um, that there are fallen angels. And actually, Orhahayim, in his uh, commentary, writes extensively about the fallen angels, which um, I might read tomorrow uh, for you. But there are fallen angels, so the natural question is, is well, if they can't change and how do they fall? I don't know. There's a mystery there. But it doesn't change the fact that angels are angels. By nature, they are um, emblematic of perfection. And they don't know what it's like. It's like when the angels, uh, in the Talmud, it talks about the angels protesting when God was going to give the Torah to Israel. And uh, they were they thought that was something should be kept in Shemayim. And God said, "Well, let me ask you something. Can you eat? So how are you going to obey the the answer is no, you don't eat. The angels don't eat. They eat, quote unquote, of the divine presence, but that's not literal. It's kind of metaphorical. They're sustained by the divine presence, but that's that's an aside. 
but they don't literally eat. So the question becomes, how are you going to, uh, how are you going to keep the laws of kashrut? How can I keep something in heaven, right? This belongs to people who can obey it. That was one of the arguments offered up. But Orha Haim talking about Yom Kippur being an eternal decree. I wanted to read this um, because it has to do with the, the, the fact that Yom Kippur is not all about sin. There's something greater here. And there's more insight to this. We may not get to, to, to it today, but there's more insight to this from Rabbi Monk. It says, the reason the verse says it shall be for you an eternal decree. Again, this is from Orha Haim. It says, it is that there would be room to reason that the purpose of the mitzvah of affliction on Yom Kippur is solely to atone for sin. That's the mindset, right? It's all about sin. We have Mashiach. Why do we need it? So it says, in which case, whenever the Jewish nation is free of sin, that is completely righteous generation, there should be no obligation of affliction on Yom Kippur. That's people's mindset. If we're totally free of sin through Mashiach, why do we need Yom Kippur? Well, the answer to that is, is that, uh, my friends, we're still... We're still on earth, and we still have need of forgiveness, and it won't be until um, we're the, in the Olam Haba that that argument could even possibly be made. But even then, we'll still have Yom Kippur. It says, the Torah therefore says that the mitzvah to, to fast on Yom Kippur is an eternal decree, meaning that it always applies regardless of the Jewish people's spiritual stature. Or Haim alludes to an additional Kabbalistic expression of the phrase Hakat Cholam. He says the inner meaning of the matter is that this mitzvah of affliction on Yom Kippur is a doctrine of the world to come. That is, it is a guarded secret. In other words, when we keep Yom Kippur because we are elevating into a completely um, spiritual realm, it's not just about sin. It's about elevation. It's about be- becoming fully who we are meant to be. You could almost make the argument, and we'll conclude with this, that just like Yeshua had the transfiguration moment on the mountain, Yom Kippur is the day of our transfiguration. It's the day in which we shine like the light of creation. More on that tomorrow, because Rabbi Monk has some things to say about Yom Kippur. We didn't even have a chance to get to him today, but we will get to him tomorrow. Bezrat Hashem. Until then, you have a wonderful, amazing, glorious day. May God give you only good news. Until then, we will see each other with God's help. Shalom, shalom.